Welcome back. On this episode, we will explore hole number two. Golf is a game made by the land. According to one of the most famous golf writers, Peter Doberreiner, he said that golf was a game that was more invented by the land of Scotland than by the Scots themselves. And the reason is the game, as we discussed in hole one, is a target game. And the Scots were simply playing this game in the only available land that they had for public use and enjoyment and recreation. And the gift that Mother Earth gave the Scots was a pristine, rolling, sandy hills of the Lynx adjacent to the sea. And the original golf matches were simply creations of experience. And even the construction of an 18-hole course didn't happen until old Tom Morris restructured the St. Andrews Old Course in the 1860s and reduced the layout from 22 holes to 18 holes, and thereby setting a standard that was adopted throughout other Lynxland where golf was played. I'm Billy McGee, and you're listening to 18 Opportunities, a podcast on golf from the perspective of history, culture, science, and evolution. Together with my co-host, Drew Tambling, we explore why we love golf. For every round on the links is 18 little games, 18 fresh starts, 18 opportunities to shake off the failures of the past and embrace the good fortune of the present. In this episode, I'm going to explore really the how the land is so vital to the game of golf and how golf really is a way in which we worship the land. I think part of the mystique and the appreciation of golf is not simply the heroics and the shot making. It's the backdrop. It's the vistas. It's the experience of walking out into an open area of a quest, of a map, of a path, and of a goal. And the land lends itself to that experience. The plan is that I will explore the history of Scotland golf. I'm then going to talk a little bit about how the game evolved by going into different geographic areas throughout the world. And then finally, I'm going to finish this episode with a conversation that Drew and I had about new courses and how golf courses are now existing on reclaimed land. And some of the most beautiful courses that are being made are being made on on, on land that's essentially been abandoned, whether because it was a garbage dump or a super fun site. And that's a real critical piece that I really want to set into motion here in the beginning, is that the game of golf always was played on very what we perceive now is pristine, beautiful, very special land. However, from an economic perspective, the land that is truly suitable for golf is not necessarily suitable for economic exploitation. Most of the best areas for golf are not very useful for farming. They're not useful for building. They're not even necessarily near an urban center, although it's a little more common in Scotland 
and England and Ireland. And I think that's really critical as a point because, as I mentioned in our intro episode, this podcast has been inspired by Malcolm Gladwell's A Good Walk Spoiled, where he challenges the use of the land. But as I brought up earlier, these golf courses, when they were first built, were not in areas that were highly populated at that time. So much talk is made over golf and the amount of land required to have the game. And given the context of the modern world, the value that we put on property, as well as open space, it's understood that the biggest complaint and the origin of the complaint from Malcolm Gladwell about why he hates golf is that it takes up so much room. Golf requires, on average, about 200 acres to have a complete 18 holes. The average, you know, par 3 being about 200 yards, the average par 4, about 400, and the average par 5, just over 500. Plus, you have all the land adjacent to the the hole itself. Even though well-designed golf courses will use the land in a most judicious manner to get the most out of the experience, it is true. It is quite an expanse. I think to compare golf with other court games is definitely like comparing, at best, apples and oranges. Because, you know, court games are really designed because they're creating a perimeter of play. The action is contained therein. And the court games, I'll even go further to say, are more connected with those that are bourgeoisie. After all, they're called court games because oftentimes they were played in medieval courts. And medieval courts were populated by medieval nobility. And in the last episode, you learned about golf as a target game, about how it compares to other ancient games like golf. Male games that have an origin in kind of a croquet style of points, but still of two opposing sides. You then learned a little bit about how golf takes much of its gameplay from field archery or, or an ancient game called cloat, where archers are shooting at target marked by a long stick or pole with a flag on top. And the goal is to get your arrows in close proximity, measured in part by the flag as sort of a a makeshift flexible ruler. Well, those games were played on the links. When people say, I'll meet you on the links, at least here in America, they mean the golf course. Hey, I'll see you on the links next week. Hey, what time are you ever going to get back to the links? You don't hear this all the time, but it's fairly often. And if you look into... Uh, the history of Eastmoreland, where I began my golf amateur historian journey. They talked about Eastmoreland being the Eastmoreland Municipal Links. At least in America, in the early days of golf, so we're talking the very early part of the 20th century, the links were golf courses. That's what was described. But if you turn the clock back, back to before the time when golf first appeared in written language by James II, banning golf in 1457. 
The lynx was just a description of a strip of land. Land which could be found almost across every Scottish shoreline. It was an ancient word, hlink, originating from somewhere before 1000 AD, which means a ridge. Now, this ridge is a very specific type of land. It's a sandy, grassy area with a thin layer of topsoil and guano, or bird droppings. This area, often described in America as dunes, as in the dunes along North Carolina, or abandoned dunes in Oregon, is not suitable for agriculture because the land is still sea-swept, and so it's very much still remnants of that salty water and air. From the ages where the seas had receded, this was old beachland. It's not suitable for building because these beaches are effectively unstable. And from time to time and year to year and storm to storm, the character may adjust and change over time. It certainly does in North Carolina, for example. Now, many of those dunes are actually out even further out into the sea, much more on the edge. But you can get a picture a little bit of that outer banks kind of um, land mass. And it's not that different from Scotland. One of the key differences, though, is that the, the, the Scottish lynx is a bit more ancient in character. And so the receding of the sea happened thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years in the past. And there's been more of a transformation of the area, as noted by scientists, by the seabirds and small animals that begin to inhabit there. And the winds which deposit other soils on top and over time, it creates a special habitat. Now, this habitat is loved by rabbits and small animals, which bring in other birds of prey. It's nesting ground for seabirds. And as a result, it becomes a place where um, perhaps you're out looking for an opportunity to make rabbit stew. You would find yourself walking among the lynx. And the king of Scotland, or the kings of Scotland, up and down this area, would have been basically a-okay with that. For the lynx were the very first land dedicated for public enjoyment, at least under the European system, specifically the British system of rule. These lands, the lynx, were granted to the people for their use and enjoyment, and there may have also been waivers given to, say, sheep herders, since the grasses that grew on the links were also a great place for them to graze their animals. This is the land that we're talking about. This is the estuary where the game of golf took root and transformed into something new. For you can imagine the Dutch traders and the Danes having their golf balls, wooden balls, 
there would have been some sort of trade of those. And, and clubs may have found themselves in the hands of the people of Scotland. And even if they hadn't, there were staffs and other types of farming tools, which could essentially become a golfing type club. Now, at some point, there must have been a moment where a couple of people decided, let's make a game of it. Let's try to play this game of golf. We don't actually have a flat area. We're not really interested in playing in the town hall. Let's go out into the links where we can enjoy a little nip of whiskey, perhaps a smoke of tobacco. And we'll just invent a game out there. In fact, why don't we use those clout poles with flags on top as targets? You'll have to actually hit the ball on the, on the stick to get the point. And you can imagine over time how the game would have sort of naturally kind of sprung forth. In fact, when you look at the written records of golf, oftentimes it's young boys that are the ones that are getting in trouble as the ringleader creating these games on Sunday, much to the consternation of the parish. For when you go into the links, it's sort of a place of refuge. You can escape the town. As you cross over the ridge, suddenly all that is within eyesight of your eyeline are rolling grassy sandy hills. Waste areas where it's a little bit more sandy than others. Perhaps a stream or two coursing towards the ocean and the sound of the waves crashing just over the next ridge. It wouldn't be unusual to be going out there to, say, do some hare hunting. And so why not, as we're going, play a little game, put a little wager together for a pence or two, or maybe even a shilling. This is the origin of the game. And as you can imagine, the game initially was a very low-to-the-ground game. The balls don't fly very well into the air, not being round by any means. Early golf balls were made of wood. As golf became more popular, as we'll talk about soon, other balls and materials came into vogue, which began to give some additional character to the game. And if we read from the writings of John Lowe, we also learn that the game itself was very much subject to the land that it existed on. And so golf wasn't so much a singular sport as a activity or a passion which one may indulge in, work on target practice, and make a little wager with a friend. It would have been a fun way for the bow makers who, with the as time passed in the advent of the musket and the rifle found themselves less and less their skills in demand for bow making and more and more in demand for golf club making, perhaps even by their own design. Who wouldn't perhaps market such a skill knowing that the bow making skills are going out of favor? It's fun, I think, to imagine and place yourself in this special place 
and I speak here to you today, I have not played once in Scotland or Ireland or Britain or any of the places which are very much the homeland or the original origin of the game of golf. I have played Bandon Dunes here in the United States, which is often considered the closest experience to Lynx golf you can get in America. And I go there each and every year because I live here in Portland, Oregon. I typically go in either January or February, which is uh, oftentimes a terrific time to go and oftentimes an absolutely, you know, miserable, uh, brutal time. And yet, if they're allowing us to tee off, which for the most part they will in almost all weather, but hail and snow, well then I've loaded up for bear and I've gone out and trekked into Old Mac, for example, in 35 mile an hour winds where the temperature is only about 40. Rain is, to call it sideways is an understatement. It's almost quite literally uh, shooting up inside of your jacket. And we all look like a collection of Morton's fishermen in a funeral march, since most of us were black, for our rain gear. The rain hats they sell at Bandon are by far the best rain hats I've ever had. They are not only the most practical thing to buy at Bandon Dunes, but they are uh, kind of, I think, you know, the coolest in terms of demonstrating you know, you're out there for the, for the real stuff. And what's fascinating is I read about the origin of Lynx golf is that golf was actually a winter game. This wasn't something that was played in summer. You see, keeping a golf course mowed, keeping the grass low, was a challenge. So at certain times of the year, it was quite difficult to make sure that the, the courses were well-maintained. And if you look into the Lynx golf back in Scotland... There was no one mowing the lawn other than the sheep. And in fact, a fascinating thing that I discovered is the sand bunkers, the indentations. Well, these were actually more often than not the creation of the sheep themselves in times of bad weather, shielding themselves from the wind and rain. Bunkers themselves aren't created, as Robin Williams said, like a sandbox to with ya. No. They're just part of the Lynx land. They were there before golf. And that's something that I really want to bring forward for you as, in terms of why golf is truly one of the land. It bursts forth from the natural design and landscape. Now, there's a whole history of golf architecture, by the way, which is in many ways controversial because as more golf courses are built, many of them are considered to be, you know, they're built in the in the in inland courses. And in fact, John Lowe talks a lot about these inland courses and the differences between them. And these courses, for example, are only really playable in the summer and unplayable in the winter because of either, you know, worse weather, so they're getting more snow. Or they're just totally waterlogged, and so they don't have as much natural drainage. Now, some of the oldest courses 
tend to be in areas that have good drainage. And drainage is so important for a golf course because you need to have, that's why that sandy, loamy turf is so really valuable. It's why when you go to Pinehurst, it's, you know, referred to as the sand hills because the earth itself is just this, this light, sandy, you know, toughness. And yet you can, you know, it's perfect really for striking golf balls. I mean, it's bang them away all day. You'll take some divots, but not, you know, not like the beaver pelts that we take up here in, in Oregon. And I think that's how it was with golf in Scotland. With the exception that I think in the summer, you know, there wasn't as much golf happening because they were letting the grasses grow. Probably the sheep herders were, you know, you could go out there a bit, but they were there to kind of let the sheep graze and the sheep would do their business. The birds would have their, do their business out there too. I mean, it was, you know, a cornucopia of life. Is it the best solution to go completely all natural? Potentially or potentially not. I think there is a balance. I think I'm not sure that you can make greens the type of caliber and quality that they exist in today without, you know, a little bit of help. Yeah. Well, making a green even, even a hundred plus years ago was an art in terms of layering sure. rocks and sand. And, and then that the green grass itself is bent or the fescue or whatever it is it's very difficult to capture like to try to capture a natural air quotes a natural feel to a golf course because much like farming the second that you put a shovel in the ground and alter the way that any kind of a crop grows it becomes unnatural even if it's like quote quote organically grown if you create a field of crops that's altering the way that nature intended for that plant to be grown. Well, we talk about that with, I brought that up with the indigenous um, crop Wapato here in Multnomah County with the Multnomah Indians. So Wapato is this, it, it was called the duck potato. So it was like a, it was a crop that they would grow in and amongst like Johnson Creek and the Columbia River. And sure. so it was, it was this, and then it's been farmed and now it looks totally different. Well, right? no, it, well, it's not actually the, the nutritional value of Wapato is not high enough for it to be considered farmable, even edible food. Yeah. But it oh. was what they had. And for those Indians at the time, it was a part of their food production, but they would yeah. definitely manipulate the environment. I mean, that is what humans do. It's also what birds do and animals do. And that was part of what we were talking about. So our Well, it's really what makes humans different from other animals. We are different because we end up utilizing more tools and we have a more, uh, we have the capacity to have a much bigger impact on the environment than animals. So we're literally moving earth totally. in big ways. To create the things that we want. To create, exactly. Animals do it like ants do it on a micro level. They're moving Earth. They're creating their entire city, unbeknownst to us. But yeah, we, it's, we it's literally, not... we literally create Earth. Yeah, we literally reclaim seafloor dirt and create new Earth from it. And in, in many of the golf courses that I've played in in Asia are reclaimed Earth golf courses. They they 
pull land from the sea. They create an area of land that they designate as a golf course for like 20 years so that the, so that the ground itself can settle. And then they reclaim that and put skyscrapers on top of it once the earth is settled that they've created. You mean they, they, they get rid of the golf course and put skyscrapers eventually there? Yeah, yeah. Once the earth is settled oh, sufficiently. Really? They, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like um, um, Marina Bay Golf Course in Singapore. It's a great example. So that is 100% reclaimed land, reclaimed land from the sea. That and it's and it's you know it's a, it's a huge huge plot of land. It's I don't know what the acreage is, but it's a, a big eighteen hole golf course with a clubhouse with a driving range, all that stuff. And it was reclaimed land twenty years ago. And they there's this there's this process of a couple of year period of time before that that soil becomes fertile enough to like grow grass on sure. and plant trees. And that's what they do. They turn, it's very typical so to the turn golf that course, land into a golf course. The golf course becomes like, what is the word, like eco um, terraforming? Yeah, it's, wow. it's it's a form of terraforming. So yeah, they they this golf course as it exists today, and it will no longer exist in about five, I think 2029 or 2025 is when the government plans to to reclaim it and develop it. Well, that's terrible. Well... It is what it is. I guess Malcolm Gladwell will be thrilled, like more concrete over a golf course. He doesn't actually believe in that, but that's the reality of like when he talks about open space and we should use it as a park. Yeah. Well, when it's that valuable in land, that's not what's going to happen to it. It's going to get turned into a giant parking lot and skyscrapers. It's crazy. They've actually, if you think about it, what they've done is used modern technology to terraform the earth create this beautiful environment that develops an ecosystem i mean there are there's a lot of wildlife that lives on this plot of land there are sea otters that come in and live in the water i wonder then with all of that happening and giving what i know about the developing world i mean i know their environmental you know protection is not as strong in singapore maybe today or even 10 years ago but i wonder what it will look like in 2029 because if those sea otters are really there and this is reclaimed habitat and the animals do see a legitimate value, like, hey, this is the kind of environment we want to be in, mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, you know, what those, those are the kinds of choices that we have to make as a culture. Do we want to now, you know, put a skyscraper there? Like, potentially the monetary value of that is significant, but as Jan mentioned, the monetary value of having an ecosystem and habitat is valuable. Another example that I want to bring out that golfers may know about, but the general public may not, is when sites that have been basically made uninhabitable are then turned into golf courses. So an example is old dumping grounds or trash sites. Mm. So I played on a golf course I think it's landfills. called Harbor. Yeah, Harbor. Harbor. Isn't, isn't Liberty National on a landfill? Liberty National is an example. I mean, that's an example which is controversial because was Trump behind Liberty National? Uh, it seems like he's behind a lot of stuff. He's stuff. behind. <laughs> he's behind one club that was like that, but Liberty National is like that. There's another club in Chicago called Harbor something. Um, forgiveness to the club out there that uh, that I ma- ma- mangled the name, but. It's a, it is basically the science involves putting a, um, like a cover over the landfill 
a sort of a synthetic tarp like you would put over a you know a pool and then uh over time terraforming the land on top of that tarp and because of the issues related to it being you know it's maybe not a super fun site but it's certainly not entirely safe for human habitat they build a golf course and you know humans do go there because it's okay to Dude. be there and but it, at, at the same time it's it's actually a great way to take care of the land dude chambers bay was built on a landfill yeah chambers was an old i thought it was an old mine listen to well. this list listen to this short list it's only seven courses that are notable chambers bay hosted a u.s open 2015 hmm. trump links at ferry point in the bronx that's the controversial one that aoc brought up skyway golf course in new jersey hmm. <laughs> granite links in quincy massachusetts which is the most beautiful golf course in massachusetts i love that course i actually recommended to your girlfriend to take you there when you came out in the summer last year oh. I, I said if you got a day take them to granite links beautiful golf course it's on a quarry seam song resort in seams uh stream song resort in stream song florida um park ridge golf course in lake worth florida and the Mines Golf Course in Grand Rapids, Michigan. These are all built on landfills. Yeah, the other one, the one that I was mentioning, um, is Harborside International Golf Course in Chicago, Illinois. So um, yeah. these... They these, call them reclaimed. Yeah, reclaimed land. And so golf courses end up kind of filling in a, a, a good human use of this land which doesn't have a lot of actual um, monetary use for building. Because even the one in Singapore you mentioned, they can't build on it right away. I mean, no, they probably would have if you could. When you reclaim land, you need it to settle for decades. Yeah. So, there, so, so, so golf fits a good um, piece. And then as you mentioned, the sea otters and the other wildlife immediately recognize exactly what we have there. Because a golf course is this beautiful ecosystem, yeah. you know, that's designed to appear somewhat undisturbed. I'm going to be heading down to Bandon Dunes in just two days to play in the Oregon Coast Cup. A match set up to play a 12-on-12 Ryder Cup style. The North and the South battle it out. I'm looking forward to seeing old friends and meeting new Ben Crenshaw, when he talks about Bandon Dunes, he says, my eyes danced around. And it wasn't just the links. It was also the canopy on the horizon of the evergreen forests of the Pacific Northwest, which for him as a Texan was something truly unique and different. And perhaps if you were to go to ancient Scotland when golf was first created, perhaps there would have been more forests within sight of the dunes. Generally, golf began as a sport which was played on these rolling, grassy, fescue fairways. Ben Crenshaw goes further to describe that he sees Bandon dunes as rugged golf, more akin to backcountry skiing or on a fishing quest for wild steelhead. 
And that experience of golf is different than for many of the more manicured resort courses where the entire experience is more like a Disneyland ride where you're in your cart and you're guided by GPS and catered really to just about any whim that you you might seek, whether it's a, a drink or a sandwich or the internet. But in its origin, you know, golf was just merely you and your buddies out there on a long walk. While we look to the original old course as still a pristine example of what golf is supposed to be about, and we still have major championships there that are just as thrilling. There's other courses in and around that area, which admittedly I have yet to play, but I've spoken to others like and hear about stories like North Berwick, where, you know, the golf is, you know, over stone walls and fences. The golf is happening around the rest of the community and the rest of life. It's not just that this area is specifically and only designated for golf. It's just that this area happens to be where we laid out the strategy of where we can have a match and play the game. And yet there are certain qualities that come out from that experience that so capture our imagination and capture a true character of what a good golf hole should be about that they've been repeated and recreated. One of the key new elements of what changed golf was when it went to the Americas. And there we got to appreciate a different topography. Because when we think about the American game, we also have to know that this also relates to what will be described further in the fourth hole, that golf is a ball game. And the critical piece is that with the new India rubber wound ball, there is an ability now to launch the ball higher. And that gave more opportunity to build courses on different types of land. And of course, the Americas provide a much more inland experience. And the golf courses that many began the ones, the earliest courses like in Pinehurst or Pine Valley. These courses were built on this sandy, loamy land that was good for drainage and do resemble in some ways the original courses on the Scottish Linksland as well as the inland courses. However, there are other courses that exist. Like, for example, I played in the Black Mesa here in New Mexico. And why don't you listen to a little bit of what I had to say playing out in the Black Mesa. Yeah, so this shot is interesting. This is like, this is actually how I would describe desert golf, you know, meets sort of lynx golf or the desert meets like the lynx. Now I haven't officially been to the lynx, as I've said, only banned in dunes, but, um, but if you look at this, it's like these closely cut fairways. It's mainly, the terrain is about the kind of the rolling sort of flow of it, sort of like an ancient seabed, which it is. And like the links is like a more recent seabed. And that's a good shot. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. So I hit like a, nine from 
about a hundred yards and three-quartered that up there so it would kind of bounce on the front of the green and that's here and that's like uh that's a shot i would hit abandoned and i imagine a shot that i would hit you know at north barrack or the old course or something I say the big difference though is the rumble of the of the tractor underneath your feet. <laughs> but as we were saying before, you can't actually. Put, you couldn't walk this course. I mean, you could, but you're basically the equivalent of a hole in between every hole. Mm -hmm. Between the first two, look at this. Beautiful. Oh my gosh. And this is the mark right here. Like I said, I'm letting my golf body brain take over. What do you think? Think it'll make it? I do. Give it a really it's great. Break okay. a little bit. Let's see. Left to right. Slightly downhill because we're on the front of the green. And my putter. Not too firm. Yes. I was going to have to cut the audio, but that didn't go in. <laughs> 18 Opportunities wants to thank every golfer who listens to the podcast and carries a divot tool and will always fix your mark. Next time you knock it stiff, snap a photo and show your love for the game and the greens by tagging the 18 Opportunities podcast on Twitter or Instagram. 18 Opportunities is sponsored by Eastmoreland 100 Project, celebrating a century of golf in the community. Discover the story of Oregon's first municipal golf course built in 1918 by Chandler Egan and still considered one of his finest creations. Go to eastmoreland100.com. That's eastmoreland100.com to learn more.